Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for January 28, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is Kayendi Andrews, Professor of Black Studies in the School of Social Sciences at Birmingham City University. He is the director of the Center for Critical Social Research, founder of the Harambee Organization of Black Unity, and co-chair of the UK Black Studies Association. In fact, Kayendi Andrews was the first Black Studies professor in the United Kingdom and led the establishment of the first Black Studies program in Europe at Birmingham City University. Among his books are Resisting Racism, Race, Inequality, and the Black Supplementary School Movement, Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century. His most recent book is The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World, published in the U.S. by Bold Type Books. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Kayende Andrews. Thank you for joining us today. Well, happy to be here, virtually. Kayendi, we are recording this interview on January 26, 2022. And that happens to be Australia Day, which celebrates the 1788 landing of the first fleet at Sydney Cove and raising of the British flag. It's also India Republic Day, remembering January 26, 1950, when the post-colonial Indian Constitution came into effect. Tomorrow is Holocaust Remembrance Day. All of these dates are related to colonialism and the racism of Europeans who perpetrated it. Your book, The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World, offers a penetrating and different analysis of this history than we usually hear. Your central thesis is that white supremacy, and therefore anti-blackness, is the fundamental basis of our current political and economic system and therefore infects all interactions, institutions, and ideas. Please explain your thinking, and we'll get into the history afterwards. Those dates are actually quite a good marker of what are the kind of central aspects of of the West and what we have now. We tend to think about positive things like the Industrial Revolution, the Political Revolution, the Scientific Revolution to get to where we are. But then we miss the much darker side, which is genocide, slavery and colonialism. And those things are equally as important, perhaps more important to the founding of what we have today. If you look at someone like Australia, would be a perfect example. The state of India finds itself in today. And the argument here is that we didn't just get this wealth from terrible racism and genocide and killing millions of people. We actually still sustain the wealth on that very same basis. Yeah, so it can't be a coincidence that if you look at a map today and you look at global poverty per capita and you look at the places where the white people live, so that would be you know, Western Europe, Australia, the United States of America, those are the richest parts of the world. And the poorest part of the world is a place where the black people live, Africa in particular, so-called sub-Saharan Africa, and there is this hierarchy in between. That's today. That isn't 500 years ago. That is the world we currently inhabit. And the biggest determiner of life chances, if we're honest, is race, right? And white supremacy. That's the world that we live in today. 
the idea of European or white supremacy was, is based on ignorance under the guise of science, and it required the elimination of the Islamic presence and influence before the so-called Age of Discovery began. Please inform our listeners about the importance of Muslim scholarship and the state of European culture and knowledge in that era. Yeah, so the, one of the biggest myths the West likes to tell about itself, and even the term the Enlightenment for that, that philosophical movement in the 17th, 18th century, is this idea that knowledge, science, you know, com- is the birth of Europeans. That's, that's why that white people are superior, etc. And then this knowledge spreads out to the rest of the world. I mean, that's a complete and not a myth. And what happens in the in the 15th century, when Columbus sails the ocean blue and bumps into the Americas, Europe at this point is behind basically everywhere in the world, like even behind the Americas, certainly behind Africa, and definitely behind the Arab world. 1492 is a really important year because that's the year that the Moors, the African Arab Moors, are kicked out of Spain, and they've been occupying southern Spain for 700 years. And in that 700-year occupation, had bought many of the things we associate with civilization, including things like cutlery, for example. But in terms of knowledge, the center of knowledge in the 15th century really was the Muslim world. By a distance, there were more books in the library in Timbuktu, for example, than they were in Europe at this time. Like it was the center of knowledge really was the Arab world. We have algorithms, the algorithms we use today. One of the most important concepts we need is actually named after Al-Kharizmi, a Muslim scholar. But we've missed out that whole piece of history and we've missed it out on purpose. So what happens when Spain defeats the Moors? They basically go on this big book burning process where they destroy all of the Arabic texts. But before they destroy those texts, they translate them into Latin, anglicize all of the names. And so the historical record becomes one that we still use, which is Greece, Rome, skip whole generations and get to Europe. And it's complete whitewashing of the historical record. So then you can have this lie that knowledge is white, science is white, everything's white, et cetera, et cetera. But it really was a, a purposeful campaign to whitewash the historical record. You write some very shocking statistics at that time in Europe, a large library would be one that had a 100 manuscripts. After the fall of Granada, you write that two million books in Arabic were burned. And at that same time, in Timbuktu, currently Mali, the University of Sankore had 25,000 students and a library of about 100,000 manuscripts. So the state of knowledge was very, very disproportionately weighted outside of Europe at that time. But that didn't last. 1492 also, well, actually the Portuguese had begun the so-called Age of Discovery. All of the places they discovered had long been inhabited by others, but anyway, they did it. But the question becomes, why was Africa so vulnerable to the slave trade that first the Portuguese began because the Europeans were so few and far from their home bases. The question of that is is what I had to pick up in the book because it's it's at the point when Europe gets involved in the slave trade, which is really 16th century, 17th century, in, 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 it really becomes industrial. Europe is actually behind, like it's significantly behind the African continent in terms of knowledge, in terms of technology. So this question does come, so why, what happened? I mean, one of the reasons is the Arab slave trade. So there was a slave trade in Africa that predates Europe by centuries. And so there was already, if you like, mechanisms and markets for all this. 
And if you actually look at why Europeans enslave Africans, the fact there was a market for it is probably one of the reasons. And actually most, like science, most ideas Europe has don't just aren't unique. They come from somewhere else. And actually some of these ideas of anti-black racism were very clearly embedded in the Muslim world long prior to European racism. So there is this market. But what happens effectively is that Europeans come in and completely change the nature of it, the tone of it, the tenor of it completely. So you had a, a slave trade, which was predominantly about domestic servitude, Majority of people were women who were taken into slavery. They were servants. They were like luxuries. And what European slavery did was very, very, very different. This was about taking people to produce commodities, to get wealth, to enrich. And this uh, transatlantic slavery, probably more than anything else, is the thing which really ignites Western industrial development because you have the labor force that is necessary to all the key commodities in which the West is built. Gold, silver, tobacco, sugar, then cotton. Those are produced by slave labor. And what effectively happens with with Europe is Europeans are able to essentially get around the fact they don't have the capacity to just go into Africa and just and just take over and, and, and enslave everybody because there's massive resistance on the continent. But because there is no developed black consciousness in Africa and everybody doesn't think of themselves, the idea of thinking to yourselves as African is, is something which happens later. Europe are able to use violence. So guns are important. We shouldn't always understate violence and guns and, and warfare. But effectively, we're able to trade between different nations and we're able to use the threat of we will come and, and, and enslave all of your people if you don't go and enslave other people. And so that divide and rule tactic was hugely important in establishing European supremacy. And then the amount of money they were generating from slavery meant that Europe developed very, very, very fast in, in, in a century. Then it starts to become the dominant economic power, industrial power and military power as well. We're taught that the Enlightenment was a tremendous advancement in human progress over the forces of brutality from the Dark Ages, etc. But you have a very different take on the Enlightenment and that it's the basis of white identity politics. The African slave trade had already been happening for 100 plus years. What, in your opinion, about the Enlightenment caused it to expand and proliferate? So if you think about the Enlightenment, there's the intellectual movement is only possible in like the 17th century and 18th century because it's built on the success of colonial violence. So you couldn't have an Enlightenment in Europe. And one of the, also, if you read any of the Enlightenment scholars, they're not just kind of racist, they're deeply racist with this idea of white supremacy, that white people are superior from Immanuel Kant to Locke, Rousseau, Washington, all of them believe this very clearly. There is this arrogance about the way that knowledge spreads and who has the right to know. Now, this would have been absolutely ridiculous in 1492 when there are more books in one library in Timbuktu than there are in Europe, right? Nobody would have said it would have been insane, right? But because through genocide in the Americas, slavery in Africa, colonization, etc., essentially mass murder and extermination, by the time you get to the Enlightenment, that slate has been wiped clean. At this point, Europe is in the ascendancy. So when someone like Immanuel Kant argues that the white race is the race that has all the talents, he can say that because Africans are, are enslaved at this point. The natives in the Americas have been all but wiped out. Indians are being colonized in the servants. That world of white supremacy in, in the way of thinking is only possible because of all that colonial violence. And then you get this theory that says we are the best, we are the West, we are the most intelligent, etc. We'll completely whitewash the historical record and we will now theorize from this point of white supremacy. And that's what's happened. That's where we are. That's why... If you go into universities today, currently, the vast majority of the texts are white scholars, dead white men. If you look at the Kant's framework of human rights, sounds nice on theory, but in practice, it's one that legitimates all the power staying with the white race. And effectively, that intellectual framework cannot be separated from the colonial violence which produced it. 
The manipulation and control of information is so crucial. And in the United States currently, there's tremendous grappling at the political level to control information. And even to the extent where all over the country, people have been organized to become very hostile at school board meetings over what they are worried about as so-called critical race theory in schools. And what this amounts to, that the criteria of what can be taught seems to be based on what will quote-unquote not cause children to experience discomfort. Of course, what is not said is which children won't experience discomfort. And we even have things like in the state of Virginia, the very recently installed governor, Glenn Youngkin, one of his very first acts was to set up a tip line to report on teachers and seeking reports of quote unquote divisive practices in the schools there. And also in the state of Virginia was a bill introduced by Wren Williams, a Republican delegate, that required required to ensure that students understood, quote unquote, the first debate between Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, end of quote. That, of course, never happened. Frederick Douglass was contemporary with Abraham Lincoln, but the debates were with Stephen Douglass. Senator Mitch McConnell, the minority leader in the Senate, recently spoke out against Federal Voting Rights Act, saying that it wasn't necessary since the rate of blacks voting in recent elections was close to that of Americans. All of these things are indicating not very subtle delegitimization of history and the full citizenship of people of African descent in the United States. I wonder if you have any comments on that, Kayendi. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the scaremongering about critical race theory is perfectly in keeping with what's happened historically, right? The central myth that holds this whole thing together, particularly America. I mean, America just prides itself on democracy, the revolution, the country of the free, all this utter nonsense. But it holds itself together on this myth, really, of white supremacy, right? The founding fathers were, were wonderful. There was the, the country is not about racism. It's not about genocide. I mean, you celebrate Thanksgiving, which is literally a celebration of genocide. You celebrate Columbus Day. I mean, Christopher Columbus never went to America. Probably one of the worst people in the history of the world, right? But they're celebrated and sanitized and put in this kind of mythology that aren't we great? And so if you tell the story differently, all critical race theory essentially does is say, well, actually, let's look at the other side of this. Let's look at the slavery, the racism, which is absolutely essential to the nation. To do that then disturbs everything because the whole the whole myths of the nation fall apart if you have to actually accept that it is a country built on slavery, genocide and racism. And so that's why you see so much effort, even ridiculous brazen efforts that you've just explained are there because to accept the reality of what the nation is then means you have to think very differently about where we go forward, right? America, look at the things like the Electoral College, how to, how, just the vote, voting in general. Like, just, there'd be so many things you'd have to change in American society if you accepted that racism was one of the principal features of American society, that it's far better to pretend that that's not the case 
and to try to essentially criminalize everybody, anybody who is trying to tell the truth. You've mentioned genocide a couple of times. You write that the logic of empire brought the Holocaust to the heart of Europe, but it didn't begin there. What do you mean by the logic of empire and how does it relate to the Holocaust? Well, there's a really good book by Zygmunt Bauman called Holocaust and Modernity and Modernity and Holocaust. And in that book, he basically argues that the way that we typically see the Holocaust, which is is this event that is totally opposite to all of the values of the West. The Nazis were just these bad, evil outliers that just that never again we make, make sure we keep the, the, the races out, is the absolute worst way to understand the Holocaust. And Bauman argues that, look, that the Holocaust is the perfect production of the West. Like it has all the elements of the West. Like but he says it couldn't have happened in any other house. She's very similar to an argument that Amy Cezaire, the Martinique philosopher, talks about, where he says that the Holocaust is effectively a boomerang coming back to Europe. And by that we mean, well, actually, what's the, the two key elements of the Holocaust? Well, one is race. The Jews effect, effectively get become racialized as not human, as able to be essentially disposed. The history of race, that's not outside the West. That's what the West is built on, right? And if you think of the Holocaust not as a totally unique, separate event, but actually as just one of many genocides which has happened at the hands of the West, which starts with the Americas, the largest genocide in human history, 65 to 70 million people wiped off the face of the earth in a generation to make way for the United States, for South America, etc., you think about the genocidal practices that took place during slavery, during colonialism. I mean, Leopold II in, in Congo is estimated to be responsible for the deaths of 10 million, 10 million Congolese people. And it's all about this concept of race, that you're not really humans. Even if you look at the, the particular Holocaust, the Germans are essentially practiced for the Holocaust in Southwest Africa. There's the massacre, a murder of 250,000 natives in Southwest Africa. So you literally couldn't have the Holocaust without that logic of empire. That logic of empire is that people can be turned into non-humans so they can be exploited. The only real difference you have with the Holocaust is it happens in Europe and it happens with people we consider white. And that's why it's that kind of standout moment that changes things. But really, the Holocaust isn't a long line of other genocides. And it's produced by the same logics that go back all the way to 1492. We are speaking with Kayende Andrews. His book is The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. When you were writing about the slavery in the Caribbean and the period not too far after Columbus came to the Caribbean, you described the massacres as industrialized massacres. Now, we usually associate that term with the Holocaust, that the Germans had perfected it to the extent of industrialization. And we often are told that basically the Spanish came in and just wiped everybody out. There's very little mention of any kind of resistance to that, but you do chronicle resistance. So share with us about the resistance and why you call it the industrialization. So actually, if you look at the genocides in settler colonies in the Americas, and also Australia, it's the same pattern essentially happens where Europeans go in try to dominate the land. And then there is this resistance from the natives. And the response is then we will exterminate everybody. It's not by accident because a lot of the debates in the literature around this, not really genocide because many of the people died from disease. But you can see very clearly and documented in all these places, there is an effort to exterminate. 
And that's why I say industrialized. It's, it's a pattern. It is very organized in terms of pushing people off the land. It is in terms of actually just going and killing people in massacres. It is in terms of even the deaths in terms of disease, which certainly to some extent were un, unavoidable because people didn't have the same immunity. But Europeans knew what they were doing, right? They went to a place and new people started. They knew exactly what they were doing, purposely did it. There's even uh, many examples of biological warfare where they purposely tried to infect people, to kill people off. But more to the point, it is this seize the land, take the resources, take the food so that people can't survive, and then transport people. That, that was one of the things we should t- see, particularly in the Caribbean, actually, that you see there's people just get moved. They, they take an island and then just take the rest of the people and, and put them somewhere else and leave them to die. So it's industrialized because it's on purpose. It's very pointed. There's a strategy, and it's a strategy you can see that's replayed in the Americas, in the Caribbean, in Australia. And it really is a pattern of settler colonial genocide that you see across all of these places. Bartolomeo de las Casas is considered something of an outlier and even a hero because he did report on the genocide that was happening for the indigenous people of North and South America. But you write that in the process of affirming that the American natives were primitive but human, Africans not so human, Talk about that. La Casas was really celebrated for this forthright views on the natives in the, in the Americas. And then, but then I, and I, I was really shocked at this. I was like, this is crazy. This guy was awful. This whole debate that happens. And La Casas is arguing that, look, you can't, we, ne- we have to stop enslaving the, uh, the natives because they, they really do have souls. And this, it came down to do they have souls or do they not have souls? And La Casas was like, no, 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 the, the, the indigenous people, they have souls, so we can't enslave them. But the logic then, and the Catas was all in favor of this, was, well, yeah, we, so we need to go and enslave somebody else. And, and who should we enslave? We'll enslave Africans. And it's a very clear, pointed move. Partly, this is actually not a, a, about morals or ethics. The point in which Europe really turns to African labor is when, because of the genocide, has exhausted most of the indigenous labor in the Americas. So there's a need to do it. But there is a reason why they don't go into Europe and start to enslave lots and lots of poor white people. You mean you have indentured labor, but that is a a, a different system and not in the same level. There's a reason why they go into Africa and say, well, actually, look, it is perfectly fine for us to take all these people, treat them as animals. And Lacassas is actually one of the architects of that, where he argues very quite strongly that Africans don't have souls, aren't really human beings, and can be treated in this way. So no hero of mine, anyway. We won't go through all the specifics that go through the centuries up to the Industrial Revolution. This was lauded as great advancement, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, it was crucial to have the commodification of cotton in particular, but sugar also from the horrendous enslavement of Africans in the Caribbean, Brazil, and eventually the southern United States. So talk about how crucial that is. And also feel free to talk about your hometown, Birmingham. Yes. Just think about it. The Industrial Revolution really is a thing that, that sets the West aside, right? Where you have this combination of science and industry and you start to get the factories and the mills and all this mass production, et cetera, et cetera. It can't surely be a coincidence that all of the key commodities produced in this Industrial Revolution were on slave plantations. I live in Birmingham in the UK, which usually gets off a lot from the slavery talk because it's a it's industrial city, it's in the middle, there's no ships came through Birmingham. But Birmingham is famous for making the chains. We made a big iron, there's lots of iron, and we made lots of chains for the enslaved, and we made lots of guns. In fact, in the 18th century, there was a phrase that went around the world, the price of a Negro is a Birmingham gun. Birmingham was that important in the, in the gun trade. But more to the point, 
it was this great industrialist that we have. So in, we, uh, James Watt, who made the steam engine, is one of Birmingham's famous sons and is essentially a saint in, the, in this city. But the first people he sold the steam engine to were sugar planters in the Caribbean, right? Like, because they were the first people that needed to use the machine. And he got wealthy and the, the steam engine became hugely important in the Industrial Revolution because of cotton production, right? And it's cotton that really is, if you think about sugar and then cotton are the two things which are the spark for the Industrial Revolution, they just couldn't have worked without slavery. Like, honestly, like all these great industrialists were all well in favor of slavery. They all needed slavery and the money from slavery. And even after Britain likes to say it's uh, morally superior because Britain abolished the slave trade in 1807, abolished slavery by 1838, so almost 30 years before America, and likes to say, well, look, this makes us morally superior. But after Britain abolished slavery, Britain was perfectly happy to take slave-produced cotton from the United States of America. In fact, Britain was the main export market for slave-produced cotton. And places like Liverpool and Manchester simply don't exist at all without all the cotton and the money that was coming through cotton. And one thing that I'd learned in the, when I was researching for the book is that Liverpool was so dependent on cotton produced by the South that they were actually sending like the equivalent of millions of pounds having big like fundraisers and sending millions of pounds to the Confederacy so that the Confederacy would win and they would keep their slave money. I mean, it's always, so when you actually look at the history of this, it's, it really is worse than you would imagine. We interviewed Professor Alfred McCoy about his book, To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change, in which he documents that from 1816 to 1867, the Royal Navy's West African Squadron interdicted 1,800 slave ships, rescued 160,000 Africans, lost 17,000 sailors in combat or disease, and that Britain spent 2% of its national income over 60 years in this effort. You have a very different interpretation of this period. What should our listeners understand from your point of view? The British efforts to abolish the slave trade were, in, were all about Britain's national interest. I mean, 1816 to 1838, Britain still had Slavery, it was not like slavery had even ended. Slavery was still alive and well. So you surely couldn't make a moral argument that Britain thought it was really against the trade in people, was perfectly happy to take money from the enslavement of people. It shows you that this isn't about the moral argument at all. There's two main reasons that Britain um, abolishes the slave trade earlier than most other places. One of them is resistance. The Haitian Revolution takes place in 1804, and people are terrified of African-born, because in Haiti, the majority of the enslaved were African-born because French slavery essentially just worked them to death. And so there was this fear of, we don't want any more Africans. Let's stop importing Africans into the colonies. We can just break in, breed our own slave population effectively. And that's the model that Britain goes for. Says we have enough people, we don't need to keep bringing in Africans, which is why we'll keep enslaving people, we just won't import anybody else. And then once they do that, they understand that actually French colonialism, French slavery can't really work without importing Africans, right? And other, their competitors need to import Africans. So what does Britain do? It says, oh, no, we're not, we're not just going to abolish the slave trade. We're going to make sure that no one else can bring in enslaved either so that we have the essentially monopoly. This is not about morals at all. It is about economic self-interest, which is just as racist. And just the dependency on the British economy, on the enslavement of African people for the whole period that book is talking about. As I said before, if you look at who's the biggest purchaser of slave-produced cotton in the United States, it is the United Kingdom. The whole economy is built on slavery. So the idea that the abolition of the trade is somehow a moral purpose is, 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 is frankly a fantasy, complete distortion of history. 
One hears talk of reparations, and it doesn't get very far in the United States. But the fact of the matter is that reparations have an historical basis, although the reparations historically were made to slave owners, not those who had suffered enslavement. And in fact, Britain has just recently in the last decade paid off the loan that they paid to the slave owners when the Anti-Slavery Act of 1834 happened. Talk about that, please, Kayendi. Yes, I know the reparations. I mean, yeah, you're right. Reparations were paid. They were paid to slave owners. Britain is not the only country. I think Denmark also did. There was a number of European countries that paid reparations. There were talk about reparations in the United States, but it never really happened. But yeah, that rep- the reparatory payment that Britain made, it's astounding when you think about it. In order to abolish the slave trade, the British government made the biggest payment it's ever made for anything. It was £20 million in 1834. And the number you often hear that compared to today is £17 billion in today's money. There's a gross underestimate because in 1834, £20 million was 5% of Britain's GDP. Now, 5% of Britain's GDP today is £100 billion. That's the number we should use, £100 billion. It was 40% of Britain's, the government's whole entire income, 40% of the whole entire income. Imagine it was, that's how much money it cost. That's how important slavery was to the economy and the slaveholding families were to the economy, that they gave this massive bailout Bigger than the bailout to the banks, because, I mean, we gave about 200 billion to the banks, but apparently that's been paid off now. I say apparently because who knows. But this wasn't a loan. This was just a a payment that was made. As you said, that that payment was so large, it wasn't paid off until 2015. I mean, so imagine that uh, me and my generations of those descended from the enslaved in the Caribbean have actually been paying off slave owner reparations. It's, it's, It's grotesque. But it just shows you just how important slavery was to the economy. And the the University College London has a project called Legacies of British Slave Ownership. There's a website where you can go and click and see where all the money went. It's 50,000 people. So it wasn't a few people. It was 50,000 people got reparations for slavery, including the church, including former prime minister David Cameron's family. It's absolutely loads of people. And so just that money alone, surely you think there should be some reparations. But if you really look at race relations today in the UK, we look at the Caribbean, where my family's from. None of us are meant to be there at all. We should all be in Africa, but we're, we're in the Caribbean. My family's from Jamaica, which is an extraordinarily poor country. Then you've got Britain, which is an extraordinarily rich country. One got rich from slavery and one was impoverished from slavery. You would think that the reparations case is pretty clear. In the United States, again, the calculations are there. I think it's between the last, last estimates were anywhere between four and 15 trillion dollars that would need to be paid. We're talking about Black Lives Matter. And if you look at the state of black life in America, it's clearly a legacy of slavery. People bought over, enslaved, locked out of the system. The wealth gap is gigantic. Reparations are the most logical solution to that, where you pay back the debt, then try to get some measure of equality. Actually, at least one source records that in the United States during the Civil War, on April 16, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln signed the Act for the Release of Certain Persons Held to Service or Labor Within the District of Columbia into Law. It gave former slave owners $300 per enslaved person set free. More than 3,100 enslaved people saw their freedom paid for in this way for a total cost in excess of $930,000, almost $25 million in today's money. So that was just the District of Columbia. 
But that is a precedent. But of course, it was again not paid to the slaves themselves. So this is a perversion that uh, I have a hard time with. But anyway, we have to keep going because there's so much more in your book, The New Age of Empire, Cayenne Andrews. One of the important things that we need to talk about is how this contributed to the underdevelopment of Africa, which still is being lived today by those on the continent of Africa. Talk about that, please. Uh, yeah, so you have a continent, Africa, which should be the richest continent on the planet. It has the most minerals, has the most fertile farmland, has the most fresh water. Africa should be the richest part of the world. It is actually the poorest part by, by some distance, actually. And this is because of this process of underdevelopment. Now, really importantly, slavery is part of that process of underdevelopment. Prior to slavery, Africa, as I said, was, was, was more advanced than Europe. But slavery itself just completely destabilizes the whole political economy of Africa. You're Essentially, the economy becomes how do we either avoid slavery or get involved in slavery and make some money, which totally destroys the economy. You're taking millions upon millions upon millions of people, working age people as well, out of the continent. Part of the reason why Africa is the only underpopulated place in the, in the planet is still a legacy of slavery. So many people were taken taken out. That led to a complete stagnation of the African economy. That led, when Europe first goes in, 15th, 16th century, Europe wants to take over Africa, but cannot, does not have the capacity. Centuries of slavery impoverishes Africa and depletes Africa to the point where Europe can then go in and take over and really does. So in the 19th century, you have the scramble for Africa, I mean, just look at the map of Africa. Where do you see straight lines on maps all the time? It's really obscene. They actually carved up the continent between the different European powers and then just have, have since then have just extracted resources like gold, like rubber, like things like tobacco, even the minerals today. And this is the thing. This hasn't really changed, right? Africa is still a place which is stripped for its resources, which are then taken to the West or increasingly now taken to China and the East. And those resources are just it's taken for nothing, effectively, uh, turned into commodities and all the money goes to the West or, or now the East. And, and so because of that, that's that's why Africa is poor. Africa is poor because it has been leached on for the last 300 years. And unfortunately, those economic relationships are still exactly the same as they were 100, 200 years ago. And then we also have to contend with the de-industrialization of India, which, of course, was a colony of the British. And an interesting fact that I learned in your book, Kayendi, is the origin of the word loot. It means goods taken from an enemy, etc. And it is actually a term from one of the Hindu languages. And the reason I picked up on that is because in the United States with the various Black Lives Matters and, and quote-unquote traditional rebellions by those of Africans' descent who, quote-unquote, riot, which is the usual term, they destroy infrastructure and they carry off commodities and stuff. So they're called looters. And former President Trump even said something along the lines of, if you loot, you shoot, or shoot if they loot, or something like that. So that word really stood out to me. Talk about the de-industrialization of India. Certainly. I mean, loot, that, I was reading for research for the book. That was a surprise to me. It shouldn't have been a surprise, however, because you look at me, India is undoubtedly far ahead of, of, of Britain, certainly in the 15th century, 16th century. Britain essentially has to wait for the fall of the Mughal Empire and 
when there's a bit of chaos, essentially moves moves in and enriches itself from slavery. In fact, one of the things I also learned with research in the book is the gold on the Taj Mahal is slave produced from the Americas, right? That's actually where they got the gold from. And the original, one of the key markets for the gold and silver in like the 15th century, 16th century from the mines in mostly Brazil and Latin America were China and India. So just to, just to demonstrate that actually China and India in particular have a long history of, of, of development and being ahead of the West. So when Britain goes into India, at the time, India is at least on a par. The standard of living for the average Indian would have been on a par with the standard of living for the British. India was dominant in the textile market when Britain goes in. But then when Britain takes over, there is a complete process of deindustrialization where they essentially destroy the fabric market. I think I'm not 100% sure, but it's something like India was responsible for 25% of world trade of textiles when Britain went in and then 2% when Britain comes out in 1948. So there's a purposeful effort to destroy India's production so that Britain could make stuff and sell it to India, right? Sell it to Indian markets. And that loot word, it shouldn't surprise us that loot is a Hindu word because particularly the East India Company, the East India Company, which managed India for a long time, they stole so much money. They would literally just walk off with money, with diamonds, with treasures. I mean, the, the queen, that symbol of white supremacy that is so beloved in the UK and around the world, all those jewels she's bedecked in are essentially stolen from some parts of the empire and largely India. And the the estimate of how much money was drained out of India over Britain's reign is anywhere between nine, it's about nine trillion dollars is the last estimate that's all. They didn't, didn't just loot in terms of take particular items, they looted the almost entire economy. And so even now, like India is rising and India is growing, but the vast majority of people in India are in, are in poverty that we would not even understand in the West. And that is a legacy of that looting to their economy. Yes, and we're talking centuries of effects that continue to this day. A lot resonated with me with the whole deindustrialization of countries. And the United States has experienced and is experienced deindustrialization, and in particular textiles, for example. And that brings up the non white West. And also, all of this is the rise of capitalism, how crucial the slave trade was to the rise of capitalism. And now the non-white West, and I'm talking about China, let's just say that, (laughs) supposedly communist, but in fact, it's their approach to capitalism that is causing the deindustrialization of the United States. Would you expand on this process and what you call the chickens coming home to roost? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, what's happened in, in now is the West, there was industrial jobs because of the standard of living is higher here. You don't want to pay factory workers, whatever the minimum wage is. And so they had deindustrialized and, and, and production has moved almost completely either to robots or into the developing world and particularly China and India. And the reason for that is because you can pay people starvation wages, right? That a dollar a day, et cetera, et cetera, to be in these sweatshops. And so it's it's interesting because doing that means you can have wealth and abundance in the West, et cetera, but it also does there's consequences, right? The jobs that were a massive feature of the post-war settlement have disappeared and they've gone abroad, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of resentment about the rise of India and China, et cetera. And we shouldn't forget that actually that the logic here is still white supremacy, right? The wages which people are paid in places like India and China, are, are, are wages. We the, the only real comparison is, is prison wages, right? It's the only place you can pay people the same amount in the West is, is in prison. And then the, the standard of living is still really low in places like China and India. There are some rich people, certainly. The economies generally are doing well, but 
they're talking about 400 million people in these countries who live in abject poverty. But having said that, that is how China and India have risen, are rising. China in particular has become the workshop of the world. If you look at all the Millennium Development Goals and people pulled out of poverty, I mean, it's all basically China. So it's been successful to, to some extent, but I think there is a limit to how successful that can be when it depends on 400 million really, really, really poor people doing special labor for commodities, which, which are bought predominantly in the West. Please talk about the role of China and India in the ongoing looting of Africa. Yeah, and this is where you can see the, the complicity. I mean, really, I mean, China's a, a worst corporate, certainly. And this is where, like, you know, China's not a communist anymore. Chairman Mao, they might float around Mao's image a lot, but the, that, that legacy's dead. If you actually look at China's development, it very much clearly, clearly ties to China joining the World Trade Organization in 2000. And what happens then, China basically positions itself as we're going to produce stuff. We're going to be the worship of the world. And if you're going to produce the commodities, you have to get the resources for the commodities. And where are the majority of the resources? They're in what should be the richest continent on the planet, Africa. And so China essentially copies the Western model where they go into Africa and are, I mean, stripping the continent of its resources. I mean, still now, China might actually end up being worse in that regard than the West. And so that same economic relationship is there where China goes in takes out the mineral wealth for, for almost nothing and then produces these products which are sold on the global market. That is one of the key functions of how China has got rich and it very much depends on, on Africa being poor. And you can see, think about deindustrialization. I think one of the examples I give in the book is Nigeria. So Nigeria's textiles production has dropped significantly since China has been involved in their economy because China is flooding Nigeria's markets with cheap textile products. So you're seeing exactly the same relationships happening between Africa and Europe and Africa and China. And of course, we are now in the third year of the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. And one of the effects of that, according to a report in the New York Times about, I'm quoting it, about a thousand nurses are arriving in the United States each month from African nations, the Philippines, and the Caribbean. While the United States has long drawn nurses from abroad, the demand from American healthcare facilities is the highest that's been seen in three decades. So this is, you can't really say it's looting, but the, the state of healthcare in those countries is already challenged mm. even in the best of times. I wonder if you have any comments on these sorts of things. Oh, yeah, no, certainly that that kind of um, that is, it is essentially looting the, the resources of the population. And that is unfortunately one of the key principles of how the West works. Like you take the best or the, the you take whatever's necessary you will take from the underdeveloped world. And you can do that because the conditions are so poor in the places they're coming from. So people will happily leave um, and make sense logically for a better life. I mean, the UK is a perfect example where we have the National Health Service, which is uh, much loved, third largest employer in the world. It's free at the point. For Americans, it sounds like communism. It's all free, free at the point of delivery, etc. But it's only ever been possible because, well, one, from the wealth from empire, but because of the labor force, that 24% of the labor force of the NHS is foreign born today. And that has been from the from this birth. And, you know, we've always depended on taking nurses and doctors from India, from African countries, from the Caribbean. And I have a colleague, Dr. John Narayan, who was doing some work on this. And during the Ebola crisis in West Africa, when people went, when lots of people were dying, huge crisis in West Africa, in Sierra Leone, uh, which is one of the places that were hit, there were, you know, more nurses 
in Sierra Leone and nurses in England than they were in Sierra Leone. And that's the level to which we are essentially just stealing really vital resources like doctors and nurses. But that's enabled because you have this massive wealth disparity between the West and the undeveloped world. And then there's, of course, the whole issue of the maldistribution of vaccines, not just for SARS-CoV-2, but other diseases as well. You write, Kayendi, that the Green New Deal won't end the logic of empire. Would you please explain what you mean by that? Because we surely need something similar to a Green New Deal. Partly the the limitations of the Green New Deal are in the name, right? So the old New Deal was good for many things, right? Like a welfare state, it's effectively it's the, it's the US welfare state. There's some securities that are put in, et cetera, et cetera. But it didn't deal with racism, right? The New Deal did not deal with racism at all. And in fact, in, in many of its key programs, particularly around housing, it actually embedded racism further. So it's it's a good thing, but it isn't something necessarily deals with racism. And I think if you look at the Green New Deal and the way that it's articulated, it's very, very, very similar in that sense that, it, yes, it's, it's better than what we have. It's certainly something that should be done. But if we think about where are the resources coming for this Green New Deal? Electric cars are a wonderful idea. The resources coming from this, though, are coming from Africa, right? That's where they come. That's where they are. That's where they, they're in the underdeveloped world. And in order to have the Green New Deal we'd like to have, you still need the economic ex- exploitative relationship. Get to pay a proper price for the resources necessary for this Green New Deal to take place in the West, the whole thing wouldn't work, right? So it still depends on the same thing. It doesn't. It doesn't necessarily change that global imbalance at all. And also, one of the things with the Green New Deal, like with the New Deal, New Deal, is it ten- is, is very national, right? So even though in the UK and even in America there are like these kind of ideas that will reach across the borders, really what we're saying is that like there's a national solution for this climate problem uh, that we can make life better for people in America or make life better for people in Britain, but that is always dependent on the exploitation of black and brown people around the world. So this is not, I'm not against the Green New Deal. I think you have to have a green economy. But I, 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 the ways that I've heard it talked about and expressed don't actually deal with the, the bigger problem of imperialism. And in fact, depend very much on that global nature of imperialism to make any of this affordable or possible. Kayendi Andrews, there's so much more in your book, The New Age of Empire. I want to give you a final moment for what I didn't ask you or what you are never asked that you wish you were by interviewers as final word for this interview. Uh, that's a good one. I don't, I, ooh, I don't know. I never asked uh, that I wish I were. I mean, one of the things actually in the book, which I, def- I don't get asked about as much as I would definitely like to, is there's this, the chapter on the, the left, actually, because I think there's a, there's a really heavy critique of the left and how whiteness defines the left in many ways. And that Green New Deal question was, was certainly a nod to it because I do think we need to, we really need to challenge. It's, it's sort of easier to challenge kind of the, the right and the, the what the, the craziness has happened in terms of the culture wars, etc. But I think the left really needs to engage with this blind spots on racism, right? And this blind spots on imperialism and that challenge of, well, look, in the UK, particularly the last several years has been this argument for we need to go back to social democracy and we need to go back to the welfare state etc and that's all well and good but you know my family came to this country under the welfare state and social democracy and it was terrible like it was awfully racist it doesn't none of those deal with the bigger global issues and racism is this global issue that cannot be solved with a national solution in in the uk or national solution in, in the united states and i think the left really needs to get the terms of that i don't think the left has really understood that so i think that 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 would be the thing to, re- to really try and understand how much racism and whiteness permeate all of our politics, uh, whether that is left or, or whether that is right. 
Well, Kayende Andrews, thank you so much for your work and for joining us today on Forthright Radio. We really appreciate it. And I understand you are working on a new book, possibly called The Psychosis of Whiteness. Do, do I have that right? Uh, it is. I've written, the manuscript is written. And where that comes from is, they actually, I was looking at movies. I was watching uh, movies. In the UK, there's only two big budget films about enslavement. One of them is called Bell which is about Bell Dido, who may be the only enslaved African who was taken out of slavery because her father was a, a lord, basically. She grew up in this mansion house and aristocracy in the movies, essentially a Jane Austen novel uh, movie. It, um, it's just, it's just, honestly, I watched it like, what, is, what on earth is going on? And the other one is Amazing Grace, about William Wilberforce, who is a white abolitionist who's credited with ending the slave trade. And I was watching these films going, this is so bad. This is so inaccurate. This is so distorting history that I don't, I don't think there's any other metaphor than psychosis, right? That the people genuinely believe this to be the case. Uh, that Britain is the country that abolished slavery. That Britain is this wonderful place in the world. And then one of my colleagues, Dr. Eugene Norman at the university, expanded this and looked at Amistad in the United States. And we made very similar arguments. We actually made a film. There's a, there's a documentary film called The Psychosis of Whiteness, where you can see how he picked out these films, et cetera. And so, yeah, my, my basic argument, my one thing I wrote about whiteness really was that if you look at some of the examples you gave earlier about what's happening in the States around critical race theory, et cetera, and then if you go back to some of the history, there's this, this book called White Rage by Carol Anderson, where she talks about the racial violence in the United States. And if you think about the history of lynching, where people are having schools are having days off so that they can go and watch men be burnt to death, burnt alive, and then they're selling postcards. And you just look at it, this, this isn't rational. Like, there's actually something deeply pathological here. And I've spent so much time debating in these spheres about whiteness. I, I, there is, it's, it, it's this delusion, which is more like a psychosis than it is like anything else. And so my argument in the book, and I use different examples to show this, is that you can't really win the argument. And what we should be doing is trying to build an alternative because we will literally, it is like banging your head against a brick wall, trying to penetrate these debates sometimes. Well, we look forward to that. And I will put a link to the film, The Psychosis of Whiteness, on the forthright.media website so that people can see you narrate that documentary. Kayendi Andrews, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You have just heard an interview with Kayendi Andrews, professor of Black Studies in the School of Social Sciences at Birmingham City University in the UK. His latest book is The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World, published in the U.S. by Bold Type Books. A link to stream the movie he narrated, The Psychosis of Whiteness, can be found at our website, forthright.media. Kayende is spelled K-E-H-I-N-D-E. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. You can also find links to articles referenced or pertinent to the interviews there at forthright.media. 
We end today's Forthright Radio with the words of James Baldwin from 1969, responding to a question about the role of white liberals in the Black Power movement, followed by Seth Glyer's song, Poison in the Roots. I suppose the word liberal refers to a political tradition coming out of the north of Europe and finding its roots or whatever its bases in England and in America. But to my ear as a black man, a white liberal is immediately suspect because it is indistinguishable and one has got to face this. You might as well say white missionary because that's the association. And it is also, alas, very often, not always, but very, very often, the role and the effect. But deeper than that, more important than that, there's also this. There's from a historical point of view, at this hour of the world's history, I have an advantage over you because I'm compelled, I'm speaking about myself as a black man, I'm compelled to doubt my history, to examine it, I'm compelled to try to create it. I'm trying to excavate my history from all the rubble that has buried it for so many hundreds of years. And that means I have to question everything. Whereas the white liberals in precisely the opposite position are being, in the main, unwilling, as well as unable, to examine the forces which have brought him to where he is, which have created him, in fact, to make, which must be very difficult, to know, that quite apart from whatever his own attitudes, aspirations, morality, whatever they may be, he is nevertheless, whether or not he likes it, he is part of the people who at this very hour are jailing some black boy in Mississippi, who at this very hour are whipping some black African slave, who at this very hour are perpetrating those tremendous enormities against a grand group of people who look like me. And furthermore, I hate to use this word, but in a sense, that innocence, that innocence can be in crucial moments a very grave danger. It can menace much, much more than the white liberal can imagine. I, my brothers, let us say, my family, have forged out of our own experience ways of talking to each other, way, you know, and, and we can deal with each other like that because we, the same thing has happened to us. I haven't got to explain a thing to my brother David. No, we just look at each other, not even look at each other, we both know. We both know. Now, you can't, in some moments, you don't have the time to explain to somebody else. You know, that's how we got that spiritual call, steal away. It's not about stealing away to Jesus. <laughs> it's a timetable. Somebody's, somebody's splitting, you know, and we know what to do because we know he's leaving. He's stealing away. You can't always explain that. And at last, one's got to face this. One's got to face this. That in many, many, many black power meetings, some of the most eminent liberals turned out to be working for the CIA. Now, it's true, too, on the other hand, that many, you know, many black people were also working for the CIA. But you in this context, you the white liberal in this context, suffer from your color, exactly as I suffer from my color in, in, a, in another and more brutal context. And one simply got to face that. If one can face it, one can deal with it, and, and then it doesn't matter. But I don't think it serves any purpose to get one's feelings hurt. Because it's not a matter of my liberation, for example. It's also a matter of yours. And if you're working, if we're working together, it's not because we're going to do something for the poor black people, we're going to do something for each other to save this, this really rather frightening world. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. The soil's